As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com. Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Okay. Mm. Welcome to... Sorry. Welcome to... (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. We've assembled a very literary cast of characters, sitting with Ian, Kyle, and Martin. And I, I appreciate this particular group because they're the ones that make me feel as though I've never read a book. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I look at Ian and I'm like, he asked me, what are you reading right now? I'm like, oh, you've probably read it because you've read everything. And then I say, I'm reading, you know what I'm reading. And he's like, oh yeah, I read that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> but Ian, what are you reading right now? So I am reading through Don Quixote. I mean, I've just started because we're doing that in a book club. And I've still been working through uh, Nikolai Gogol's Dead Souls, but I've kind of stopped. I've been paused on my reading for a bit. Yeah. Don Quixote. Slowed down a little bit. And you're yeah. reading Don Quixote, the first novel. And that's that's a helpful segue. Yeah. This conversation is going to be about the yeah. novel. Because our Memorial Press literature is 95% novels. And I think it's maybe 80% if you think about the plays. So I think that's worth talking about. So that's where we're headed. And you're reading what many people would consider the first novel. Sure. Thoughts on Don Quixote? So I far, mean, it's hilarious. I mean, you know, I I, I want to be aware of why that's so, why people call it the first novel. So I've read the little introduction, which I typically do because they often give you, you know, good signposts to look for as you're reading the book. Sometimes introductions aren't great, but most of the time they're helpful. And so I've I've done that. I'm, I'm seeing how he's satirizing a lot of things. And so it's fun, but I'm only, a, you know, handful of chapters in. So it's yet to see, I'm, I'm yet to see uh what's really new about it. Yeah. Martin, are you an introductions guy? Do you read introductions and novels? Uh, I do. I, I think that there's certain literary forms that we really undervalue and introductions are one of mm. them. You know, book reviews, introductions. I think these are actually important genres that, that don't tend to get uh, much love in, in the, in, in, in our world. Um, and in fact, I, I was told the other day that that publishers don't want to do book reviews anymore. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've seen, you know, if you, you look at collections of like people like Joseph Epstein, uh, my one of my favorite essayists, um, when they put the collections together, they have his introductions to certain <laughs> books in there. They, I mean, it was only through, uh, Kyle will appreciate this, it was, it was only because I read Irving Howe's introduction to Moby Dick that I read Moby Dick. He convinced me in that introduction. It was a, it's a brilliant uh, introduction um, that I, that I should read it. And I did. And so I, yeah, I think they're very important. Yeah. Martin, what are you reading right now? <laughs> um, I'm still, I, and I may have mentioned this in a previous podcast, right, cause I'm still, I'm going a little, going a little slow right now. The Peloponnesian war by Thucydides. I, I as I've said before, I read several books at the same Some time. Some tough so Greek I'm, in there. Huh? Some tough Greek in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and not as much in the English, though. Um, so I'm reading Peloponnesian War, um, which is a classic. I try to always be reading a classic. I'm reading a novel. I'm still in Lorna Dune mm. uh, by, I think it's R.W. Blackmore. A, a very early novel, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Ian was talking about um, Don Quixote. How you go back and, you know, I always think that certain characteristics are much later 
mm-hmm. um, that that the sophistication comes much later. Actually, you go early, and and Lorna Dune is early. Don Quixote is at that very early, and and yet there's things that have you know uh, sprung fully formed from the head of Zeus, so to speak. I mean, yeah. the irony in Don Quixote. I mean, irony is the controlling literary mode of our age. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of looking down on things and making fun of them. And well, that's there fully formed in Don Quixote yeah. in a Spanish yeah, I've, work, ar- I've already with, noticed that in just the first oh my, several chapters. Yes, absolutely. Which it's gives it humor so, and, oh. yeah. And then in, in the second part of it, which he writes later, he's ironizing the first. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just amazing what he's doing in there. Um, uh, so so uh, Lorna Dune is that way. And then I'm listening to uh, um, Louis Marcos's uh, uh, from Plato to Postmodernism, a history of literary criticism, which is mm. for the, about the fifth time because it's so good, mm. uh, and and so that's what I'm. Nice, and you also are reading at least one essay. Last night, a group of us got together to discuss by a professor at University of Virginia, 1987, I think is when he published it. I can't remember his name. Michael uh, Askleman. Michael Askleman. So that was pretty. So you're reading that as well, and yeah. you're always kind of reading these things that we get together to discuss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kyle, what have you been reading recently? So. I've got a fiction going and a nonfiction going. Uh, the nonfiction I'm reading is I'm rereading Roger Scruton's little book on beauty, mm. uh, beauty, a very short introduction, um, which is fantastic. And the fiction I'm reading is Steinbeck's East of Eden, which is, is very well written. It's a beautiful novel and, and the scope is impressive. Are you about to criticize um, Steinbeck on my yes. podcast? <laughs> yes, I, yes, I am. All right. I, I, well, but you know, it's, it's we a go. beautiful novel, and the scope is impressive. Um, but I think it's—I think ultimately what he's saying is, uh, I think, false. I have about a hundred pages left, um, and I just—I don't know if I can get fully on board with his point in the novel or his his focus. Um, but I'm—I'm I'm enjoying the read. So, so what is the point? I, I, I think, so I think Steinbeck, um, I, I think East of Eden, I will say, mm-hmm. is a materialistic book um, and is, I, I think he's searching for, um, the, you know, the, the means by which to pursue uh, something meaningful and something good in a materialistic world. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, and I think his focus on his, his, overwhelming focus on what makes the world go round and and what uh brings you know goodness out of evil or goodness instead of evil is uh human choice just just that the human you know our our responsibility and our freedom to make the right choice instead of the wrong choice and this is where we get the contrast between good and evil yeah well it's interesting you say that because i you know I, i what the thing i find in steinbeck who's probably my favorite American novelist is meaning. It's, it's mm. just filled with meaning. And, and it, un, un, unlike or Hemingway where it, it at least is harder to see. Mm. Uh, and, and I, and so if, if you're, if his focus is really, how, how can a materialist really even believe in meaning? I mean, mm. but Steinbeck really does. Do you think that's because of choice? Like what he, what he's doing is saying like, we must choose to find this meaning in our lives. Like I, it seems like that's a, that's a pretty common existentialist move 
Um, yeah. So I think so. So the villain in the novel is sort of evil, um, inexplicable evil. Um, and the answer that I've, that I've seen so far and because it's, it's the retelling, uh, well, a couple of retellings of the Cain and Abel story. And the answer so far is, is it all comes down to Cain's choice of how, how, how is Cain going to respond to the situation that he's in with, with Abel being accepted and Cain being rejected. The entire meaning of the human race, I think, for for this novel, it, you know, boils down to: Is Cain going to choose, you know, the path of vengeance and, and murder and evil, or is he going to choose, which I guess I haven't, I haven't gotten to, you know, what Steinbeck would put as the alternative to the negative choice. Um, but ev- even that, I'm not sure that 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 is what the 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 meaning of the human race boils down to. Yeah, well, it's a great yeah. book. I read it. Yeah, it is a great book. Certainly a great book. Nice. I'm, re- I'm reading something a little lower on the shelf. <laughs> um, so I've been reading T.H. White's Once and Future King. Mm. Which is um, a great book. Series of novels great. written in the 30s about the Arthurian legends. They're like, I can't decide what level they're on. They're, they're kind of between Lewis and Tolkien in terms of difficulty. Um, they're like junior high, high school. Too like difficult for junior high, but like high school, I mm-hmm. guess. I don't know. What I, do you think, I, I would think so. I mean, I read it when I was a kid. But I read it again as an adult, and I mean, we all have the experience of reading something again as an adult and finding so much more there. But the humor in the Once and Future King is just so—it's so great. It's definitely and sophisticated. It's sophisticated humor while telling a story at a simple level that a child um, can really understand. So there's really levels of enjoyment that I think you can have, and it ironizes <laughs> yes. the yes. Arthurian story. Yes, that's right. Which is what's so interesting about it. Yeah. Don't, it's funny. Yeah, and I'm th- I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Just finished the first of the four novels, Sword in the Stone, and I've just started the second mm-hmm. novel. But an interesting connection. I'm also reading a nonfiction and a fiction, and I've been reading through Plato's Republic, and I'm in book three. And what's interesting is that the Once and Future King, written right at the time of World War II, really a, a huge theme. Like very beginning of Sword in the Stone, Merlin summons Poseidon as he's giving an education to the wart. Mm-hmm. young King Arthur <laughs> and he turns them both into fish and they go meet the King of the Pike and the King of the Pike says might makes right. And then mm-hmm. that is a ter- theme they return to mm-hmm. in Plato's Republic. The whole question of the book is what is justice? And the conversation is started by Thrasymachus who says that justice is the interest of the stronger. That's what mm-hmm. justice is. Mm-hmm. And Socrates is responding to might makes right throughout the entire rest of the novels. I, I thought that was kind of interesting yeah, that that is that perennial question is kind of underneath of both, but enjoying both quite a bit. That being said, another thing that I've found interesting about Plato's Republic is that in book two, or maybe it's three, when he's discussing those things that should be forbidden in the the true city, he talks about two ways of telling a story. There's imitation and there's narrative. And he divides imitation from narrative. Basically, that's when there's a narrator and when there's dialogue. In some ways, the novel is a form of art unlike the comedy and tragedy, unlike a play, where imitation and narrative are combined. That's one way you could talk about the, the, the novel and what a novel actually is. But I think it'd be worth exploring. Most of the memory press literature curriculum are novels. Why do we have our students read so many novels when that form doesn't necessarily go all the way back? And what is a novel itself? 
Well, you, I think you started on an interesting uh, insight there that it's some kind of combination between the dialogue form and and really the myth. Hmm. I mean, it, it's a it's a way of it's a it's a modern self because the, I mean the thing I think that distinguishes modern thought is the self reflective self. You know, I mean, I mean, Hamlet is the first time I know of where somebody's talking to themselves. Mm. You know, we, we, we've split ourselves. We, we now have selves in the world r- rather than being just the locus of consciousness. Um, and and uh, so I, I think that I think that the novel is the form that's responding to that. Uh, that we put ourselves in the place of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're looking out on the world from the protagonist. So it's, it's, it's both the appropriate literary form and is, I think, the form that was produced by this very thing, this self-consciousness that we have. Um, we now think not only about other people, but we think a lot about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so to have that, that locus of consciousness in the novel uh, where, where we, can, we can do that in somebody else's character to get out of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Kyle, how would you, if someone just walked up to you and said, to find a novel, how would you answer this question? I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> this is something that I've, I've just wrestled with. Um, and usually it sort of occupies like the back burner of my mind. Cause you know, I like novels. I like to read them. I'll put that on the, you don't on know the, what they are, the but you like it. <laughs> yeah. And I won't really worry about what they are, you know? Um, but you know, just in terms of it is like, what are the essential differences between other forms? I sometimes wonder is, is a novel, I mean, is it almost a lack of form rather than a separate deliberate form on its own? Um, I don't know. So, so, but, but I, I do, I did come to, or um, I've been thinking recently about realism a lot. Um the complexities of realism, I think, you know, the, like the, the causes when, when any art form becomes realist, why that happens. And then also what kind of different uh, sort of iterations of realism are possible. I think there, there is, I don't know, just put it into like simplistic terms. There, there's a, a negative kind of realism or wretchedness in the world. And then there, there's a positive kind of realism, which, which, you know, looks honestly at the wretchedness of the world, but finds hope in it. Um, and I, I, I don't know that that's directly related to the novel, that novels are sort of inherently realistic, but I don't know. I thought it might be worth bringing up. Do you think, yeah, there's, some, you, you seem to be saying a little bit that it's easier to define a novel by saying what it's not, but then yeah. whatever it ends up being, that form seems to lend, I think to Martin's point, some kind of ability to to re, to portraying life as it actually is, like for in a way that maybe other forms cannot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that like first person perspective, um, just what you're describing, like the, you know the 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 self analyzing the self. Um, yeah, because you read Homer or Virgil, and you right? Don't, you don't know their thoughts, right? Inside, you just know what they do. Yeah, and and now we want to get into the psyche. Well, and it would, which lends itself, I think, possibly to what what you might call like an authenticity. Um, 
if if that makes sense as a word. Just a a uh, my perspective on the world, rather rather than the, you know the the somewhat distance between me and the myth, or mm-hmm. me and and the, you know the, the the gods and the heroes mm-hmm. outside of you know Troy. Mm-hmm. There's sort of this very internal, very authentic, very honest. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I mean by realism, right? Um, aspect of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. it's it's always about. They always seem to be about, and I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but uh, how the soul of the protagonist changes mm. because of something. I mean, isn't that a, what happens in every novel? Yeah. I think kind so. Of, kind of the hero's yeah. journey kind of concept. Yeah. yeah. The hero's journey, but it's an internal journey. An internal right. Journey. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, in our curriculum, when you're reading through the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid, those journeys, I mean, the Odyssey is obviously a journey, but it's all external. It's mm-hmm. all external. The all action true. happens to the character mm-hmm. and you might get into the character psyche mm-hmm. at times, but the novel is always, not always, but generally internal. I mean, when you mm-hmm. read something like the brothers K or Anna Karenina, I mean, Anna Karenina ends with this fantastic stream of consciousness mm-hmm. where you are in Anna's final moments. Yes. And right. that's something that the novel. Yeah. That doesn't happen to Achilles. Achilles. Right. Achilles changes his mind, but his mind doesn't change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Odysseus that's is good. not a different person by the time at the end of the book. He's the yeah. same person. Whereas it's always some internal journey for the main character. It seems like in novels. That, which that enables the epic to start, you know, sing muse. Of this, yeah, mm-hmm. and then the right. point is we're going to sing about that for the whole. Yes. Whereas I don't know the novel can really do that, right? In the same way, yeah. Right. Well, I think you know it. So anybody listening is probably thinking of trying to think of exceptions, and that's why before I asked you the question, Ian, we met in the biblical studies world, and yeah. I, I thought you would be outraged at the question because I'm asking <laughs> you to participate in something that biblical <laughs> scholars call form criticism. Yeah, that's right. that is determining what a thing is. <laughs> And where it came from by strict definitions of form that never work in yeah, any, in that's any right. way. <laughs> that's right. Um, but Ian, anything to add to our definition of what what is a novel? What is that form? And it's obviously not correct. But tell me what you that's think. That's right. It is. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I think we've hit on on the on, on most things here. And you know, to borrow other legal definitions, you know, you you, you kind of know what a novel is when you see it. Like you you just you can look at it and know it's typically of a certain size and length and. You know, we can have a discussion about novels, novellas, and other kinds of things, but I'm not really interested in that because I think the main thing is already what we've talked about, that there is sort of that internal change in the character. The lives of the characters, I think, are more more prominent in a novel than in, in an epic. I mean, you love characters in epics, but you love something about the characters, not necessarily the, the characters themselves. I mean, you, you may, and I'm sure there are exceptions to that, but... Yeah, well, in the, in the, the characters and a lot of classic classical uh works are types they're right. sort of a representative of a type rather than right. in a modern individual mm-hmm. that's right mm-hmm. well and even in something like you know sometimes dickens may may be criticized because a lot of his characters are types you know they're mm-hmm. often caricatures mm-hmm. but even so some of his characters are caricatures but others have that sort of deep inner soul that we are that we're diving into i mean you read a tale of two cities and you're mm-hmm. getting to know Sidney Carton, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and his final act is so powerful because mm-hmm. you've gotten to know him mm-hmm. and who he is yeah. in a way that an epic doesn't. Right, right. 
So trying to shift away from defining a novel kind of by what it's not, which is mm-hmm. a, probably the easiest way. It's not a play. It's not a poem That's necessarily. Right. It may bring in elements of those things, but it's not. Another way we could approach this is by talking about the elements of specific novels that we've read, that we've enjoyed, how they've worked on us and what we've enjoyed about them. So, you know, I'll kick it back to you. What are a couple of novels that you've enjoyed and why? Um, sure. So, A Tale of Two Cities has been one of my favorite novels uh, for for years. I mean, I read it in high school. I read it again. I listened to it. Had a great narrator. And so it was very fun to listen to, very engaging. But what I love about that is that 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 uh, deep dive into the character of Sidney Carton, that you're that you're introduced by someone who's this, you know, obviously kind of first jealous, depressed figure and and watching his transition from that into a glorious thing in the end, you know, and I, I don't want to give anything away because that is a novel worth reading to the very end. Um, I love Dickens' uh, language throughout A Tale of Two Cities. I mean, obviously, sometimes his symbolism in A Tale of Two Cities is on the nose, but that's okay because it's kind of, he's teaching you, I think, in a book like that, especially if you're younger, how to read things, how to see symbols in a text. I mean, uh, I, I was listening to a talk you were giving about, you know, the wine is blood in the very yeah. first, you know, chapter of A Tale of Two Cities. But the thing is, is if you're reading it for the first time and you're making that connection, mm-hmm. it makes your it makes your cognition stronger the next time you read a work with more subtle symbols, you know. And so I I, yeah. I, I really enjoy that. So we could boil down what you're saying to the form of, you know, Tale of Two Cities helped you understand char- characterization. Exactly right. Complex characterization That's right. and symbolism. And symbolism. Mm-hmm. The use of both. That's right. Kyle, what about you? Um, can I have two? Of course. <laughs> I have two. Because uh, my first... Would you so, like three? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, as many as... Yeah. Um, no, but I... So I guess I'll start... And I, just thinking in terms of novels that I... That just in my thinking, I keep falling back on whatever that novel has done, um, whatever that novel does, just to, to explain, to kind of explain the world to me in a way. And the, the novel that kept on coming to mind um, is Bronte's Wuthering Heights, uh, which I, it's like my, my thinking about the world cannot get away from that novel. And I'm so close to it, I, you know, and, and I, I, prepare myself to tell people about this novel because the the overwhelming response I get about this novel is that it's just dark and it's depressing <laughs> and why would the author do this to me and then <laughs> um I totally agree with that. Yeah, so I, this so I think this novel does so much that it's it's really hard for me to kind of make a, a defense of it, but I want to try briefly. I, it's I, like I defending have, a roaring lion, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but the power and the beauty of it, right? So, um, yeah, no, so, so I, I've not run across a novel that's so well, I mean, you mentioned Tale of Two Cities, which is great. And I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. disparaging anything like a Tale of Two Cities, but, but the theme of self-sacrifice, um, it, you see that everywhere. And I think in that novel, Dickens does it particularly well, right. but it's, it's a relatively easy sell and it's a relatively easy story uh i guess post-christianity a relatively easy story to tell um bronte in in wuthering heights is giving i think just one of the best portrayals of um long suffering 
which I mean, the kind of self-sacrifice, um, I think of it as like a, like a hopeful self-neglect, a kind of self-sacrifice that spreads itself over an entire life, which I'm, I wonder if that's something particular to what we were saying about the novel form in general, that it can look at something spread over an entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the character of Nellie in Wuthering Heights is she is long suffering. She's meek, not because she's timid or because she's afraid, uh, but because she's hopeful in better things than this world. Um, and it, by the end of the novel, I, I, you know, I don't think it's any spoiler to say, you know, the meek, the meek inherit the earth by the end of the novel. And I think that is, it's just one of the most true and powerful expressions of that. Um, all of that, you talk about novels that teach readers how to read, which is, you know, I teach English. This is a very important subject to me. Um, that novel, all of that is, is, is set within a frame narrative. Wuthering Heights is written at a frame narrative, which means we have basically the character Lockwood is hearing the story of Wuthering Heights along with us. So he's reading, in a sense, the novel mm-hmm. with us. Um, and he's reading it poorly. There are little moments that Bronte puts in where, where you get Lockwood's response to the story. And he's not doing a very good job of seeing its depth and its meaning and, and the significance of this, this virtue of long suffering. Um, and I think Bronte is showing us by that the contrast that the long suffering is, is, you know, the virtue that she's, she's holding up. And in the opposite to that is the self-centeredness and the self-focus that one makes us poor people, you know, gives us a poor character as in our interactions with others, but also makes us poor readers. So she's doing this thing in this novel where she's connecting that Christian virtue to good readership and, and, you know, the, the virtue of reading well, which I find, I mean, it just, it, it blows me away that the, the importance, I, I, would, I would call it importance of that novel. Um, so that's one, that's Wuthering Heights. I get I the just, sense that you like Wuthering Heights. I, I really, <laughs> really do. I, it's, but again, I, I, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's an important novel, right? I, I, I don't want to insist, you know, it's, it's a beautiful novel, I think too. Um, it's just very, very well put together. Um, but it says something that needs to be said uh, and says it well and says it articulately. So, I, yeah, I, I like Wuthering Heights. Yeah, my answer for my other novel is a lot shorter. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's, that's The Great Gatsby. And I just want to read, um, this is another thing that novels can do. I brought a copy to give you this example. Very short. Uh, right at the beginning, this is just a description of the Buchanan's house. It's describing a house. It says, the lawn started at the beach and ran toward the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. Finally, re- finally, when it reached the house, drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run. That's a description of someone's yard. And <laughs> right. it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and so, so that's what I love about The Great Caspi, is just, just the, the words and, yep. and the, you know, the, the sentences. Yeah, that's good. And I think especially that point is helpful when we talk about poetry versus novel versus play, what is a novel? It yeah. it kind of, or poetry can be extremely precise in the way that it reflects our experience of beauty. Novels sometimes bring that precision, but lay it in a context for us of a story, of a greater story of characters and people moving. And so it takes that beauty that maybe you've experienced in poetry and contextualizes it. Mm. Martin, what would be a novel that you've enjoyed and you've enjoyed exploring over the years? 
probably Anna Karenina. I think that's probably my my favorite novel. And you know, we're talking about this sort of the psychological journey of of characters. You know, you you have this sort of cross at the center of mm. Anna Karenina because you have two journeys going on, and they're going opposite directions. Because right. you have Levin going to heaven, and you have Kitty going to hell, and uh, and their the way their lives uh, cross over each other at various points in the book, and and just this this very abstracted life uh, of somebody without virtue, who seems to have it at the beginning, but she just becomes corrupted, and 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 Levin, who um, who lives, he's a he's basically a person from the country not and this is in a lot of novels there is this there's the the, the country mouse and the and the town mouse right mm. and 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 a lot of the greatest of our literature takes place in the country or there's themes from the country about it uh, you know you have, you have Tolstoy's writing about the country and Dostoevsky mm-hmm. who's who's whose uh, stories all take place in the city uh, city's a place of evil in many ways mm-hmm. of corruption so, and I just love the way that Tolstoy embodies everything. I think this is what the greatest novels do, is they don't tell you, they show you. Um, and the significance of the stories is not in anything that they say explicitly. It's in the actions of the characters, the form of the plot, um, and even the setting, as I just pointed out, uh, uh, is is significant in... in uh, and so I, I, I think those are the, those are the virtues of, of, a, of a great novel. Yeah. I think I would point to The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, I think is a great example of a novel that I love and on a couple of different levels. Ian, you mentioned symbolism. I mean, it's a, it's a novel dripping with symbolism, maybe, maybe too much in, in some mm-hmm. ways, but it's a dripping with symbolism in a way that I think um, really does take this story and move it to a level of theologizing and um, and showing them the ultimate meaning of many of the actions of these characters in a way that's very persuasive. I think another piece is that Hawthorne in writing the novel is extremely funny. Mm-hmm. And there's a way that if you are the narrator in a, telling a story rather than in a play or a poem, if you're the narrator, then you can describe events in a way that the characters themselves don't perceive or in a way that they do perceive, but you as the audience don't, don't quite understand, you know? So there's different ways that you can play with the perspective of the, the speaker and Hawthorne does all of those things as he's telling the story. Um, and then I think last is that he sets it in a historical context that I find interesting. He sets it up talking about his, his grandfather's the Puritans. And then he, he talks, you know, this is Hawthorne as a, not a Puritan, reflecting on Puritanism and its historical setting. And I think he's actually more judicious than probably people give him credit for in portraying that or the early Puritan settlements. And so I think it's a great example of a novel that operates on all those different levels. Well, it's, it's a, that, that's the other thing that the novel, the form of the novel has so many variety. There's so much variety in the way that it can be done. You know, when you have the, omniscient narrator like in Tolstoy or you can you can have the first person um narration uh you can have you can have what 
is technically first person narration, but is really omniscient narrator in Brothers Karamazov. <laughs> you, there's just so many yeah. varieties uh, and ways that it can be done, and yet it mm-hmm. main, it it maintains itself as a distinct form. I think that's really yeah. Cool. With flexibility mm-hmm. seems to be its defining yes. characteristic, yes. which is not a not helpful for categorization or yeah. description. And can I make one more and one more remark? And this this hit me when after, when I read Jane Eyre, but it. Could be obviously true of Wuthering Heights and and really Fitzgerald and these people are not people who are trained in university writing departments. These are people living out in the country who are just normal people. I mean, I mean Charlotte Bronte. Uh, she's just an everyday person, and yet she is this vessel of Western culture living out there in the country not having a, 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 even a real great formal education. And she writes this book. And, and, and I, I did, I did the, for some reason that just struck me when I read that book. And then I realized, well, really, they're all that way. <laughs> all the great novelists are this way. How did they achieve this? How did they, how did they learn to be great artists basically on their own? Well, it wasn't really on their own. It was because they were recipients of the Western tradition and, and they read the previous works by previous people in the Western tradition. And, uh, and it's not really something centered in our houses of learning. It, it's something that they just got by accessing the tradition itself, which is what our institutions, institutions of learning used to do is connect us with that tradition, but they don't do that very well. Mm-hmm. So that transitions us to my next question would be that, you know, the Memorial Press materials or literature curriculum is largely novels. And that's, that's why I chose this topic. So speak to the students who are in these programs or the parents of students in these programs or teachers teaching these programs. What is your word to people who are struggling with high school students struggling with Tale of Two Cities hmm. or, you know, the teacher who doesn't quite get the great Gatsby? What are on ramps into this form why is it actually beneficial and why would you defend the primacy of novel in our curriculum over? We do have poetry, we do have plays, but they're not as, there's not as many as there are novels. I think I want to start first with a, a Christian perspective and maybe a theological perspective because I think that will speak to a lot of us. And this may not be universally applicable, but story is so important to who we are. We respond to stories. And one of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking about form earlier, you know, you have the great epics that had a very clear form. They were poetic in nature and they called the muses and there were these distinct moments throughout that are replicated in other, other epic poems. But then you have in the, the Jewish and later Christian tradition, the Bible, which really combines a lot of these forms together. You've got poetry, you got poetic texts, you got narrative from the very beginning. I mean, the earliest mm. books are narrative and maybe poetry and Job or something like that based on your, your opinions on these matters. And then you get to the gospels and in the Christian tradition, it's story, it's narrative. And so what we're doing when we're reading books is we're participating in a tradition that, that, prioritizes and prizes story as something meaningful to us, as something that can change us, as something that gives us, you know, paths to follow in principles. And so that's one thing. That's just one way to think about it. Well, I think that that speaks to the, to the issue that um, 
that education is primarily moral. Mm-hmm. And as people like Alistair McIntyre have pointed out, you can't, you can't see what, what morality is outside of the context of a story, right? Mm-hmm. of a narrative. You can't know if you're a good person unless you are a good, unless you can see yourself as a good character in your own story. And so I think the novel is extremely important because it gives us practice in how to see a life as part of a larger story and what your role is in it, uh, just as, as part of the whole uh, moral instruction that you're implicitly getting in, in, in any good education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ian, your comment about Job made me think of, have you heard that theory that um, Job is actually an early Hebrew tragedy and that it was, it was performed I, I by have, the play? But what I, you th- what's your take I, on I, that? I don't have any take on that. Oh, I have okay. no opinion on that, but I have heard yeah. that. Yeah. You know, there is actually a Greek tragedy yes. um, called The Life of Moses mm-hmm. that was written about him yeah. like pre-Christ. And so, yeah. you know, it could be an early antecedent. That's right. Well, I and I, Job is my favorite book of the Bible. Yeah. Actually, I, yeah. it's just so fascinating to me, and uh, and I, I have not heard that that this is some new theory, but it <laughs> it it sort of makes sense. Yeah. It's a cosmic tragedy, right? right. Um, and and it it just speaks to the whole condition of man and the finitude of man, and how we are beings who strive to understand, but we're also beings who are incapable of totally understanding. Mm. And God just comes and and puts us in our place and reminds us, and this is a good reminder for modern people, and reminds us um, that, that we are not the subject and God the object, that, that God is the subject and we are the objects. And we have to, you know, in asking our questions, which are, they're fine to ask, uh, that we need to remember that God has everything under control mm-hmm. and that we don't know everything. <laughs> that, then that speech yeah. out of the whirlwind at the end, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. that seems to be clear to me. That, so, yeah, that, that's, um, in answers, like, back to the, the, the question about, um, you know, what, what is the advice to, well, to teachers, you know, or can't necessarily get into the novel or understand, just, um, there's a difference, I think, between teaching what this novel says, right? You know, sort of explicitly, like what's the message, versus teaching how to read a novel. Yes, I right. Agree with that. Um, and I, that doesn't mean that that your selection of books is is just random, right? There are some novels that teach better than other novels. Um, but I think I think overall, the the point is is you you know to teach students how to read exactly. Because it's it's that virtue. I mean, that goes. I think this is what what Bronte is doing in Wuthering Heights. It's, it's that virtue that that what you just said about you know God is is the object, um, uh, you know, and we, we are we are subject. Um, I think I think Martin's point was that God is, God is subject in right, the sense that he it? he's yeah. the yes. actor yes. and yeah. we are the acted yes. upon. Yeah. Um, yes. But yes. your I'm, point I'm being reversing. that I agree. He is I'm, above I'm misusing <laughs> the words. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so I agree with you, I, I, but, but reverse the words in my brain. Um, yeah, but but it, it puts us learning how to read well puts us in that posture of of you know being being sort of at the feet of the novel is like being at the feet of God, right? Mm-hmm. Or or Job laying his hand over his mouth mm-hmm. is you know I look at Job in that moment and I think he's he's reading well, 
rather than trying to author his own um, his own narrative, rather than trying mm-hmm. to assert himself, um, he is he is listening to you know God's assertion of himself, right. and that's and, that's and this is why helpful. I like you know there's all these arguments about. And, and and I think a lot of bias in modern criticism against the omniscient narrator, because I think the that form implies that there is a God. Mm-hmm. And and I think when you if you don't believe in God, then you're not gonna like the omniscient mm-hmm. narrator in a novel. Yes. <laughs> and I and and so I, I think that whole training in seeing the world from a God's eye perspective is important for us as believers in God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kyle, you're speaking to the importance of being a humble and attentive reader. Yeah. Um, how do you encourage students in your classes to be, are, are there any general things that you're saying or is it more specific to particular texts? Yeah. Um, no, it, it, it's a, uh, I, I think, I think a lot of the great authors are doing this consciously. Um, th- there's, there's a scene in Wuthering. Uh, no, I said Wuthering Heights again. I'm obsessed. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I think officially yeah. certified. So, uh, you are. Yeah. Uh, a different novel that, that whose title also begins with W. Wind in the Willows. Um, there's a scene in Wind of the Willows where they're lost in the in the wildwood and mm-hmm. uh, Mole trips over something and, and mm-hmm. cuts his leg. Um, and if you uh, go through it briefly, if you don't know the scene because it, it's beautiful, he, he trips and cuts his leg. Mole is upset because he's hurt. Um, Versus Ratty, who who his friend, you know, the water rat, is digging through the snow trying to establish what it was that that cut him so cleanly. It's a very, you know, it's a clean, it's not a jagged cut. Um, he digs in the snow and he finds uh, a door scraper, which I'm not sure I know what a door scraper is, but I assume it's some sort of shovel for removing snow from from a doorway. I was always confused by that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well uh, Ratty starts celebrating and dancing up and down in the snow, you know, as, as though they're, they're saved from being lost in the woods. And Mole is bothered by this because, you know, hey, I'm hurt here. Why are you Why are you happy? <laughs> and Ratty keeps saying him, don't you realize what this means? Don't you realize, like, if where there's a door scraper, there's a door. And mm-hmm. if there's a door, there's salvation. You know, we're, we're not lost in the woods anymore. Um, that's... I don't know how practical and helpful that is, but that's where my mind goes in the sense of of the the proper posture in approaching a novel. Like there there is, um, you know, there, there's rescue. Uh, there are answers. There's meaning to be found in a novel, mm-hmm. uh, and that's you know, as students are very inclined to focus on, I've been hurt and I'm upset about that, or I'm hungry and I want to go to lunch. Right, they're very inward turned, and I think the novel's job, the teacher's job, um, is just through the example of of the, the text itself to show the virtue of pulling them out of that. There are bigger things going on. Sympathy, that, yeah, sympathy. That's yeah. A, a great example from *Wind in the Willows*. It's so great, in fact, that I do this one speech for teacher trainings that I do, where I use that exact example for wisdom. Exactly. And now I'm yeah. a little concerned. I stole it from you. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'd be happy whoops. to take credit for that. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, any final advice for students or teachers of the form of the novel? What's What's a way to access these books? What do you would you encourage someone with who is struggling with long novels? Well, uh, that, there's several questions there, I guess. But, but I think that it's just important to be able to share your own enthusiasm for these books. I think that a you know a good teacher um, is 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 you know he's he's ethos and logos in the sense that he's he's got his own 
knowledge that he brings to the situation. Uh, and, and there's certain, you know, explicit things that you can say about the novel. But I think the pathos is also important that you need to share your love for these books. And you have to somehow be able to communicate, like Kyle just did, why you love this book, and 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 do it in, in a way that that they're 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 getting some of your energy for this, and that's that's not something you can you can learn very well as a teacher. A lot of that, quite frankly, is innate. But if you can if you can love this stuff as much as you should. And you can somehow share that love with your students. Uh, this will change them. I've seen it many, many times. Um, if they can, if they can see themselves as a as a, a protagonist in a story, you will change their life. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation with you guys about mm-hmm. novels. Thanks for being here. Thank yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.